You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Not Luke, like you might have expected, but John. Maybe some of you expected John. Usually what I try and do when we have a special theme or a special message or a special holiday like today is to keep right in the course of what we normally are doing on a Sunday morning and not try and leave either the book or a near subject matter. And this worked out very well because we've been looking at some of the language in John that we haven't really taken much time to look at. They just kind of mentioned it. And it is John's story of Christmas. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, John's story or theology of Christmas. I know what you might be thinking. You might be saying to yourself, but Jim, I, I remember the Christmas story from Matthew chapter 1. I remember the Christmas story from Luke 1 and 2, but I don't remember a Christmas story in John. Do you remember the Christmas story in John? It actually is John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh. Now that, that phrase, the Word became flesh, that's Christmas. The Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning, he existed. He existed with the Father. He was with the Father. He was equal to the Father. He knew the Father, and he was with the Father. And that word, that eternal word, that divine Son took upon himself human nature. He took upon himself flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that is John's account of Christmas. That's true in one sense that John does not tell us anything about the wise men. He doesn't tell us anything about the shepherds abiding in their fields, watching over their flocks by night. He doesn't tell us anything about the announcement of the angels to either Mary or Elizabeth or to Joseph. He doesn't say anything about the virgin birth. He doesn't say anything about Mary or Joseph. He doesn't even mention, as Luke does, the birth narrative of John the Baptist, though John the Baptist features prominently in the Gospel of John. John, the author of this Gospel, really cuts past all of what we would consider to be the the furniture on the stage of human history at the time that the Word became flesh. And in a very simple, straightforward, pure way, John really, with a lot of glory in, in this purity, just mentions the theological implications of Christmas. The Word, that eternal Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, John says, saw His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the message of Christmas. Now, the shepherds and the virgin birth and Mary and Joseph and Caesar Augustus and the decree and Bethlehem and the donkeys and the wise men and the gifts and Herod trying to kill the baby Jesus, all of that is its not insignificant, but in terms of John's Gospel, all of that is just the furniture on the stage of human history when this event took place. And so there is a beauty to John's simplicity, a glory really to John's simplicity, in just cutting past all of that and saying, here is the theological truth about what happened on Christmas night. The Word, the eternal Word of God, became flesh. Now the rest of John's Gospel is an explanation of all of the theology behind and the implications of that one event, the Word becoming flesh. 
And John, far from not mentioning the Christmas story at all, actually mentions it in almost every chapter of his gospel, all the way through to the end. Almost every chapter. And John uses terms like this. The Father sent the Son. And the Son came. Or Jesus would say, I have come. Or I came. Or I was sent. Or the Father sent me. All the way through the Gospel of John. That terminology is used. Now as we've gone through the Gospel of John, I haven't really sort of keyed in on any of those references. Though I have noticed, and I've mentioned it a couple of times, that this idea of the Father sending the Son is sort of a theme that's woven throughout the Gospel of John. We see it surfacing every once in a while in different contexts. Jesus mentions it, or John mentions it. So today, well, this last week what I did is I sat down and I looked up all the references to the word sent and all the references to the word come or came in the Gospel of John. And I looked at all of them and I sort of pulled out the ones that have to do with Jesus, where Jesus is speaking of himself coming. I got rid of all the ones that dealt with John the Baptist coming or You know, the disciples came to Jesus, things like that. Just the references to the Father sending the Son or the Son coming. And I was amazed at what I found. I found when I looked up the word sent in John's Gospel that it is used of Jesus being sent by the Father 40 times in John's Gospel. Then the word come is used 22 times of Jesus. I have come, for instance, that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And then the word came is used 12 times in John's Gospel for a minimum of 74 references to Jesus coming or being sent in John's Gospel. 74 of them. And those are just those three words. There are other other words and other passages that might indicate it. But those three words, 74 times, that's a major theme. And in almost every chapter, the fact that I think I counted only two chapters where this is not mentioned in some context or in some way that the Father sent the Son or that the Son came. And so really the Gospel of John is all about the Word becoming flesh. It's all about this Christmas event. But John really cuts to the heart of the issue and says, here's the theology behind it. So we're not going to look at all 74 references to the birth of Christ or to the coming of the Son, but I do want to look at a few of them. So with your Bibles open to John chapter 1, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take sort of a brief, though it might feel like longer, survey of some of the references to the coming of the Son or the Son being sent by the Father And then I'm going to give you three implications of this, or three things that this language teaches us theologically about the Son and the Father and the relationship of the two. John chapter 1, just a survey of it, verse 9, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now that's not Jesus saying that, that's John the author describing Jesus coming as the light of the world. Look at verse 11, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Verse 30 of John chapter 1, This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. That's the, that's from the mouth of John the Baptist. Look over at chapter 3, verse 2. This is Nicodemus affirming, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. This is Jesus saying, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Verse 34, chapter 3. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Look at chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 5. Jesus says in verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. 
He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Verse 30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Verse 36, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me, that the Father has sent me. Verse 37, The Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. Then turn over, and we're going to skip, by the way, chapter 6, where we saw all of the references in recent weeks to the bread of life coming down out of heaven. Remember? That was the thing that got Jesus in trouble with the crowd. He said, I am the bread of life. I have come down out of heaven so that you might have life. And they said, this is Joseph and Mary's son. We know him. Born of a woman, born under the law, born under the curse of the law, born just like every other person. We've watched him grow up in Nazareth. We know this boy. How can he now say that I have come down out of heaven? That was in John chapter 6. Look at John chapter 7, verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 18, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Over in chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus answered them and said, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I am going, where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. 9, verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me. As long as it's day, night is coming when no one can work. Look at chapter 10, verse 10, familiar verse. The thief comes only to steal and to destroy, to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 36 of John chapter 10. Jesus says, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of Man. See the reference to being sent by the Father? 11 verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Look at chapter 13, verse 20. We're not hitting all of them. I know it feels like we're hitting all 76, but we're not. We're skipping over a lot of good ones. Chapter 13, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Chapter 14, verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine but the fathers who sent me. Chapter 15, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Chapter 16, verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Look at chapter 16, verse 27. In verse 26, Jesus says, And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Chapter 17, verse 3. In His high priestly prayer, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 17, verse 8. 
For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Chapter 18, verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my word. And all of this comes to a sort of a conclusion, a climax in chapter 20, verse 21. This is the last reference, 20, verse 21. This is after his resurrection. Jesus, with his disciples, said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, all those references to being sent and being sent by the Father, I have been sent, I have come, the Father has sent me, all the way through the Gospel of John, all of it comes to that conclusion in chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. One of the main themes of the Gospel of John is being, is the Son was sent by the Father. And then you get to the end of the Gospel of John, you realize, just as the Father sent the Son, now the Son is sending us into the world. Now there are implications of this theology of being sent by the Father, the Son coming, the reason that He came, His own understanding that He came into the world for a specific purpose. There are massive theological implications of that. It's interesting as we go through, and I read all of those, the different contexts in which that truth is affirmed. For instance, it is affirmed before hostile Jews in chapter 5. It is affirmed before an unbelieving crowd in chapter 6. It is affirmed before uh, His disciples in John chapter 16 and 17. It's affirmed before the Father when the Son prays that to the Father. We hear this being this truth being spoken and uttered by the disciples, by John, the author of this book, by John the Baptist in the beginning of this book, by Jesus Himself, and by the Father and the testimony of the Father. This truth is sort of the central theme or one of the central themes of the Gospel of John, that the Divine Son came into the world, took upon Himself human flesh, the Word became flesh, and that Word, that eternal Word of God, the Son, dwelt among us and we saw His glory. And then having dwelt among us, He now sends us. So these words, sent, come, I came, all of those references to the sending of the Son by the Father, it indicates three things, three things that I want you to take note of. The first is the Son's preexistence. The Son's preexistence. We can say something of Jesus Christ that cannot be said of any other person who has ever lived in human history. That He existed before He ever came into this world. You cannot affirm that of yourself and you cannot affirm that of anybody else. That they existed before they came to this world. And all of the language that John uses throughout his Gospel speaks of Jesus coming from one place to another. Jesus says, I have come forth from the Father. He was with the Father, John 1.1. 1, 1. And He came to the earth. He was in heaven, and He came to the earth. That can't be said of anybody else. No prophet of God, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, no other prophet could affirm that. No priest in all of the Old Testament, Aaron, Levi, none of them could affirm that they came forth from heaven before living here. And no king, not David, not Saul, not Solomon, not any of their descendants could ever claim to have existed before coming to here. No prophet, no priest, no king, no man of God, no woman of God could ever make the claim that they came from heaven here and existed in heaven before they came here. Yet that is exactly the claim that Jesus made. And that was one of the things that infuriated the Jews. John chapter 6. How does he say he has come from heaven? We know his mom and dad. 
How can he now claim to exist before he was born here? Because the Jews understood, and you and I understand, that we have no existence before we come into this world. But Jesus Christ is different. He could speak of being with the Father and living with the Father and existing with the Father and loving the Father and having conversations with the Father and being equal to the Father before he ever stepped into human history. Nobody else could ever make that claim. Prophets of God could speak of being commissioned by God, being sent by God, being on a message, a a, a mission from God, but none of them could ever speak of being God, being equal with God, or existing with God before they came here. One of the most familiar of all the messianic prophecies that you probably have sitting in Christmas cards laying all over your all over your house right now is Micah 5 verse 2 where the prophet says but as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah too little to be among the clans of Judah from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel his goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity in other words the one that's going to be born in Bethlehem has existed from all of eternity that's Michael Micah chapter 5 verse 2 Jesus was aware of his own preexistence. He knew it. He affirmed it. He spoke of it. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before there was ever a creation, the Father existed with the Son in glory, and the Son enjoyed that glory, and he prayed that the Father would glorify him with that glory that he enjoyed with the Father before he ever came here. That's the preexistence of the Son. The preexistence of the Son. He existed before he ever came here. You and I step into this world and we look forward to the glories of the world to come, right? The unending joy, heaven, bliss, the presence of the Father, the 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 enjoyment of that, the freedom from pain and suffering and affliction, all of it comes with the life to come. Jesus is the opposite. Jesus enjoyed all of the had of all of those things and then he came here. For him it was going from high up to down low. For us it is being raised from our humble state into conformity to the glory of his body. He existed before he ever came here. He enjoyed the prerogatives of heaven. He enjoyed the worship of angels. He enjoyed uninterrupted, unhindered fellowship with the Spirit and with the Father from all of eternity. And he left that and came here. His preexistence. Second, that language of being sent by the Father indicates a priority within the Godhead. We have talked about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their role in salvation. That in salvation, the Father has a role to play, the Son had a role to play, and the Holy Spirit had a role to play. All three of these persons are the one God. They are not to be confused with each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. He's not the Holy Spirit. There is no confusion or mingling between the persons. In the incarnation of the Son, there is indicated a priority that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is within the persons of the Trinity a hierarchy of authority or function or role. That does not mean that the Son is inferior to the Father or that the Spirit is in any way inferior to the Son or to the Father. They are equal, but in terms of their role or their function, there is a distinction between the persons. So it is never said in Scripture that the Father took upon Himself flesh and dwelt among us. It's never said in Scripture that the Holy Spirit took upon Himself flesh and dwelt among us. That was the unique function, the unique role of the Son, the second member of the Trinity. So there is within the Trinity the Father sending the Son, and we are never told that the Spirit sent the Son, and we are never told that the Father or that the Spirit sent the Father to do anything. It is the Father who sends the Son, and then the Son, later on we find out in John chapters 15 and 16, and the Father will send the Holy Spirit. So there is a hierarchy of authority or role within the persons of the Trinity. There is a glorious submission. Now does that mean that the Son, in coming or being sent by the Father, came here unwillingly? Does it mean that? Why is it the Son who came and not the Father of the Holy Spirit? 
Did he lose the vote? Was there a vote taken in heaven and it was two to one, the Father and the Spirit all agreeing that we should send the Son? And if we're going to send someone, let's gang up on the Son and send the Son to go suffer? The Son to go take upon Himself human flesh? Is that how it was decided? Not at all, because as we've seen before, the will of the Son is identical to the will of the Father and the Spirit. And so the three persons all will the same thing. And it was the will of the triune God for His own glory and for the benefit of His people to give a people to His Son and that the Son would come into human history and take upon Himself human flesh to be born as a man, born under the law, born under the curse of the law, and then to bear the curse of the law for all who will believe upon Him. That was the will of the triune God. And the Son came in submission to the Father's will quite willingly. The Son willingly submitted to the will of the Father and the Spirit and Himself because it was all the same will. And the Son willed to come and to humble Himself and to submit Himself and to be humbled even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that He might accomplish the redemption that the Father had planned from eternity past. The Son did not come willingly. In fact, His willing submission to the Father and His willing Willingness to be humbled and to humble himself is given in Philippians chapter 2 as the greatest example of humility imaginable. That he who existed in the form of God did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to at all costs. But he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He wasn't humbled by the Father. The Son willingly gave up all of the prerogatives of deity, the glories and the comforts and the pleasures of heaven, And he came here and he humbled himself and he was born in appearance as a man, born under the law, born of a woman, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That was his own act of self-humbling humiliation in submission to the will of the Father and he did it quite willingly. So not only pre-existence and priority within the Trinity, but a third, there was a purpose that the Son came into the world. There is a purpose for this. The Son didn't come into the world to show us what a political revolutionary was. The Son didn't come into the world to simply merely live as a good example to show us how to love one another. The Son didn't come into the world to show us just what God would look like under difficult circumstances or to suffer death on a cross to be an example of the great love of God. The Son came into the world and took upon Himself human flesh for a very specific purpose. The angel announced this to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You shall name Him Jesus, for He will what? Save His people from their sins. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came that you and I might have life and we might have it more abundantly. In the very context, John 10, which describes Him being sent by the Father, Jesus said, I come and I lay down my life. And I lay down my life and no one takes it from me. I have the power to lay it down. I lay it down willingly for my sheep. I'm dying for my sheep. I lay down my life and I lay it down willingly and I'm going to take it up willingly. This commandment I have received from the Father. He came in order to pay the price for sin for all who will believe. And now the invitation, the open, of the, uh, the, the open offer of the gospel is open to any and all who will come. And if you come to the Son, you will find that His blood is sufficient to atone for your sins. There is a purpose for His coming. And we saw this in John chapter 6. The Father gave a people to the Son. The Son came to redeem those people. And the Son came to give His life in the place of those whom the Father gave to Him. Because the Father loved them. And the Father loved His Son. And the Father could do nothing greater than to give His Son all of those people. And to give all of those people everything He has in His Son. And then the Son would come here, be born of a virgin, to suffer and to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. 
Unto us this day in the city of David is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christmas is about salvation. Christmas is about lawbreakers like you and I, thieves, fornicators, lusters, blasphemers, uh, liars, perjurers, gossips, idolaters, slanderers, selfish individuals. It's about those type of people having their sins atoned for by that baby who is in the cradle, who came into this world, took upon himself human flesh, to offer that flesh for the life of the world. That's Christmas. It's Christmas. Unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your eternal divine plan which culminated in the offering and sacrifice of your Son. At the perfect time, under the perfect circumstances, you came into this world, the person of your Son, to die on a cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for humbling yourself and taking upon yourself human flesh, humbling yourself even to the point of death on a cross, and then rising again, conquering death, and offering forgiveness to us. We thank you that all of those who have the Son have life. And we tremble for those who do not have the Son because the wrath of God abides upon them. We pray, O God, that if there are people sitting among us today, that you would, by your mercy, draw them to yourself, save them by your grace, and may your word find a resting place in our hearts as we appreciate the incarnation of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come again. As he came one time, he will come again, but this time not for salvation, but for judgment. And as we have seen him go, we will see him come again. He will prepare a place for us and receive us to himself. We look forward to that day when we will enjoy the glories of heaven and eternity with that son who was born here. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you for your kindness and grace to us in making us to know that Savior and opening our eyes to behold your great salvation. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.